we are back once again to explore faith and pursue grace. And as you can see, we don't just have two faces on the screen, nor do we have a mere three, but we have four. Count them four souls joining us on this four, podcast baby. today. Woo. Four, that's right. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And joining us today, we have Daniel Rogers. He's going to be a part of this conversation as well. And our guest that we are interviewing today is the author of the upcoming book, Do I Stay Christian? He is an esteemed author and international bestseller, Brian McLaren. Thank you so much for being on our little program today, sir. Well, what a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. We are we are thrilled to have you on whenever uh, we started the process or Kevin started the process of reaching out to have you on. I got excited. I've heard of you. I have heard some of your interviews and I'm embarrassed to say until this book, I haven't read any of your other books, but I have several others that have been ordered. They are on the way and I'll be diving into those as well. But we're really excited to have you on. And I know that some of our listeners are going to be familiar with you and who you are and your body of work. And some of them may not be. So would you mind just introducing yourself to our audience and telling us a little bit about the objective of your new book that's coming out and what inspired you to write it? Sure. Um, well, for the somewhere around 8 billion people who've never heard of me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I, I grew up in a, a, a Christian uh, movement called the Plymouth Brethren, um, con very conservative Christian group. Uh, with a lot of similarities to the Church of Christ that some folks might be familiar with. Um, I uh, was involved as a young, uh, a young adult in something called the Jesus Movement back in the early 1970s. Ended up uh, becoming, uh, my plan was never to become a pastor. I uh, wanted to be an English teacher, so I taught college English for a while, but ended up helping start a little church, ended up leaving teaching to become the pastor, and I, I pastored that congregation for 24 years. And during that time, I started writing some books. And, um, and so for the last, gosh, I guess it's 16 years. It's hard to believe I've been, uh, I've been a writer, speaker, activist. I have a number of causes that I'm very involved with. And I should also say I'm married. My wife's name is Grace, and we have four adult kids and five grandkids. Awesome. And some turtles, too. Right? That's true. I live in southwest Florida, where uh, Daniel and I used to be some somewhat neighbors and definitely friends. And uh, if you ever came to visit my yard, you'd see a bunch of tortoises walking around. <laughs> well, and, and that's something, you know, Daniel, I was unfamiliar with your work until Daniel introduced me to it a few years back. And it is really just phenomenal. I mean, it has helped my journey so much spiritually and especially your book, Faith After Doubt is just awesome. I mean, it is just oh, awesome. You. And I have recommended that to so many people. Uh, and you have a, such a gift, a talent. I feel like when yes. I'm reading your book, you are in my mind. And I feel like, I'm like, how does, how has he lived my life? How does he know all of these things that I have thought the, in the deep corners of my brain? Like, how does, how does Brian know this? But it is just phenomenal. And, and I wanted, you know, Daniel's here with us today. Um, I'm actually not in Oklahoma where I normally am at. I wasn't able to travel back to my house. And so Daniel, allowed me to use his equipment and we're actually at his church right now and so I wanted to just give uh, Daniel just a minute or two as well to if, if you're fine with it just to kind of talk about how you two met because if it wasn't for Daniel uh, we wouldn't be having this podcast right now and so we wanted to have Daniel join us as well so if you just want to 
give us a quick little summary of how you met. Yeah, well, most most people that listen to this podcast have heard my story, at least the first part of the story, uh, with involving my family and everything like that. Um, but in the fall of 2018, I'd started to read some books by Rob Bell and Richard Rohr, and I was getting into PDN's podcast. And I started listening to PDN's probably in November, and Brian is around episode 35. And so uh, basically one episode a day <laughs> I was listening to. And uh, I finally got to Brian's and he was just like you mentioned a second ago. It's like he was in my brain, just naming things that I'd been feeling for for several years at that point. And I sent him a, uh, a message. I was I was deep in stage three, as he's going to talk about in a little bit and just looking for some kind of help. And I didn't realize that he was a Time Magazine, you know, top 25, most influential pastor, uh, you know, super author, you know, published all these books. Otherwise, I would have been intimidated to send him a message. <laughs> so I just I just sent the message in hopes that he would respond. And uh, we went on a nature walk uh, a few weeks later, and I just poured my heart out to him out uh, out underneath all of the the trees and among painted buntings and all the different things. And uh if you read Faith After Doubt, chapter one, there's a guy there named Michael, and he's got a few details different than me, but that's me. Uh, that's me. And so if you want to read more about mine and Brian's uh, friendship, you can read Faith After Doubt, uh, chapter one, and you'll, you'll see me. But yeah. he's just been a great friend and mentor and uh, really helpful and encourager in my transition back to Alabama. So it's been it's been awesome. Um, yeah. Well, thanks. Thank Th thanks for saying that, Daniel. Um I have such good memories of that walk and meeting you. Uh, and, uh, and uh, I, just so people know, I, I always try to change details when I tell someone's story that if, oh, if, yeah. uh, if I'm, if I'm worried that, um, being associated with me might get them in trouble, <laughs> I, I especially try to protect their identity. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the details were just to help me, not to hurt me or miss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the details have been changed to protect the guilty. We understand. <laughs> no, that's, it. that's it. That's yeah, it. Exactly right. Well, and and so we're happy. You know, we've we've mentioned one of your 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 books, Faith After Doubt, but we, we are so blessed to have you on today to talk about your new and upcoming book, Do I Stay Christian? And this interview is worth it if nothing else. We were able to get a copy of this book before it came out, and so. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it is once again just a phenomenal book, and it's fantastic. Yes, after oh, faith, after, after faith, after doubt, I thought, okay, well, you know, what more can really be said, quite frankly? And then you read this, and you're like, a lot more, and it is just really, really good. So we're excited to have you on here to promote this book, to let others know about it, and just for you to be able to share with us uh, a little bit more about the book, and we being able to already read it, have some questions we would like to ask, but I just want to start with what inspired you to write this book, Do I Stay Christian? Mm. Well, first, let me say, guys, um, your encouragement about the book means a lot to me. I Really, only like 10 people in the world have read it so far because it doesn't <laughs> come out until May, so it means a lot to me um, to hear that feedback. Uh, so uh, as, as you know, Kevin, um, Faith after doubt, I talk about four stages of faith, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony. And uh, so I was. Uh, my goal in that book is to try to help people be where they are, um, not judge where they are and not judge where other people are, but just understand we're at different places in, in, in our faith development. 
And um, but here's the reality: uh, we have a lot of churches that are very, very welcoming to people in simplicity, and we have more and more churches that are welcoming to people in complexity. But very often, when people move into perplexity or harmony, they can't find a church where they feel at home. And in fact, they don't even know that there's any form of Christianity that has room for people in perplexity yeah. or harmony. And so um, that question, do I stay Christian, is a question uh, I heard even more after people started reading Faith After Doubt, because it just felt like there was, they weren't sure if there was a place for them. And so um, what I wanted to do in the book is to try to take seriously the reasons why a person would wonder if they could stay Christian. And that's what I do in the first 10 chapters of the book. And then I wanted to help people see that they could take seriously those problems and still stay a Christian if they are ready to, if that feels right for them. Um, and, uh, and so that's what I try to do in the second part of the book. And then in the last third of the book, I try to ad address what I think is the deeper question. Um, and that's the question of what kind of people uh, do we want to be? Uh, can I just tell you guys a quick story uh, from my days? As of a course. Pastor? Yeah. <clears throat> this, I, I remember this woman, young woman started coming to our church and she was really being touched. I think the spirit was working in her life. And, and so she said to me something like this, Brian, I have a lot of problems. I'm a pretty messed up person. Um, she said, and if I become a Christian, I'm really worried that I'll become an even worse person <laughs> because she said, then on top of all my other problems, I'll have to become judgmental and, and look down on other people. And, uh, and I, I, I don't know if I'm communicating this right, but she was so completely sincere. Yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I think that what I loved about that is her real concern is what kind of a person am I, am I becoming? And I don't want to become a worse person. And uh, <laughs> that to me, I, I think that's a question that would make Jesus feel very good. You know, when, if yeah. someone were to say, I, I really don't want to become a worse person. <laughs> what kind of person do I want to be? <laughs> well, and that's a sad but true commentary right now in so many different churches <clears throat> and within so many different branches in Christianity, because yeah. I know for me, when I was reading through this book, I was able to resonate with it so well because there have been a lot of days when I asked myself, am I still a Christian? Yeah. Right? Like, am I, what qualifies or disqualifies? I mean, at what point, what questions can I start asking that finally disqualify me yeah. from being a Christian? Because I was taught that you almost couldn't question anything. Yes. Uh, if, and if you did, you had to do so very quietly and internally. And even then, there were only so many questions you could ask yourself. Yeah. And what I love about this book is it allows the freedom to explore, that it's okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that what is so powerful with what you're doing is Christians or those who perhaps have left and think they're no longer Christians may discover they actually still are <laughs> Christians yeah. and that what they're doing doesn't disqualify them, what they're thinking, what they're believing. In fact, is I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but you know, toward the end of the book, they might discover that they are a better Christian than they've ever been in their in their whole entire life. Yeah. And so I just think it's so powerful, um, just what you're doing and what you're trying to accomplish. But that story is 
it is it's sad, but it is funny because uh, you know you don't want to take a good atheist and turn them into a bad Christian, <laughs> and uh, you know someone who's this good, outstanding, moral person, and then they become a Christian and end up a, a horrible person, and 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 that's those are the types of things we have to look at and ask ourselves: What are we doing? And I think we have to remember that uh, that Jesus actually agrees with that. You know, he he yeah. he said, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say?" In other words, you know, just I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested in how you live or, or him saying not by their beliefs, um, will you know them and not by their doctrinal statements, will you know them, but by their fruits, you will know them. And, and, and when he says, you know, the greatest commandment is love, uh, or, and then Paul picks up on that and goes to places that I think we don't realize how radical they are when he says, for yeah. example, that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Oh my goodness, it's just so powerful. So I, I think, but but there are plenty of people who certainly respect those verses in the Bible, but they, their whole understanding of Christianity has been focused on different things, and 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 the, and you can't blame them for believing what people they trusted taught them. So. Well, and that's so true. And we're a product of what we've been taught. And one of the things Kevin said in an episode we recorded not long ago is whenever we're young, we don't choose what we believe. When we're children, we're told what to believe and we adopt the viewpoints and the theology and the religious and spiritual perspectives of our parents. And that can serve us very, very well for a time until we get to the point where our experience begins to undermine that framework that so much of our faith has been built on. And whenever that happens, that cognitive dissonance begins to manifest itself. We don't know what to do. And in our mind, the entire construct of what it means to be a Christian fits into this box. So what happens whenever my experience is leading me to view God or faith or Christ or my fellow man through a lens in which they don't fit in that box anymore? What do I do then? And that's when we begin to go through those stages that you discuss in, in this book towards the end of it briefly. But our experiences so often are, and that cognitive dissonance that comes from that is so often what leads so many people to leave Christianity behind because they remain entrenched within that, that stage of simplicity. Yeah. And when that doesn't work for them anymore, well, then what do we do? And, and Daniel, it looks like you have something that you're wanting to, to add to this. Do you have something that you're wanting to chime in with? Oh, yeah. You were talking about the safety and security of that earlier stage. And I was just going to say, it sounds like you've read Faith After Doubt. Even Not yet. Said, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like you're already there. But uh, I appreciate that story that Brian told. The passage that came to my mind was uh, Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says, you traverse land and sea to make one proselyte, and he's two times worse than you are. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, that does seem like what we do. And and I actually heard Rob Bell say one of the things I appreciated is, uh, is he said that sometimes someone's denial of God or their version of God is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. Yeah. And we wouldn't think that stepping away from faith could ever be a sign of spiritual maturity. But uh, in, in your book on uh, evangelism that you wrote, you talk about how sometimes someone has to go to point B, which may be way out here before they can ever come back to point, you know, C or D, which might yeah. be closer to Jesus than they ever were before. 
So yeah. but those are, that's a good little story. Yeah. Oh. I, I, I should just say, uh, Daniel, when you say that, it makes me think of one of my uh, friends and mentors, passed, he passed away, but Dallas Willard, many people might know his name. Um, and Dallas used to quote someone else who said this, but he would say, uh, if your understanding of God is distorted, you are worse off the more devoted you are. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, and, and that's so true. And it's not just our understanding of God, but and we don't realize this at the time whenever we're in that that mode of simplicity, but it's our entire understanding of Christianity and what Christianity is. Yeah. And one of the things that you mentioned in your book is how Christianity is stuck. And you use this, this metaphor of this beautiful, glorious ship that is equipped to take on any waters that come its way. But because it's moored to such a heavy anchor, it's so heavy that the crewman can't pull the anchor from the silt of the bottom of the sea yeah. and the boat yeah. remains stuck. And you use that as an analogy to discuss toxic theology and toxic faith. And in that chapter, you discuss what beliefs are in the minds of so many Christians. To so many, Christianity isn't a way of life. It's not following in the master's footsteps and sacrificing self in order to express a greater degree of love for the downtrodden, for neighbor, for enemy, for whoever else we come into contact with. It's a set of beliefs that we hold to. And one of the things you say in, in your book, and I'm going to read this, is that Christianity faces a very practical dilemma. Do we Christians want to continue to enfranchise scoundrels who hold right beliefs but perpetuate harm? And conversely, do we want to exclude good and genuine people, Christ-like people, in fact, who in good conscience cannot affirm our list of beliefs, even though they are wholeheartedly following the way of Christ? And those are questions that are very, very deep questions. They get to the root of our perception of Christianity, but it bucks up to what we were discussing a few moments ago. Our experiences can often erode that understanding. So why is it important in, in your mind that we don't ignore our experiences or abandon critical thinking as we go through our the evolution of our faith? Yes. Well, you know, uh, what a good question. Um, I, I, As you say that, I think back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he has he has this statement. I, I'm forgetting at the moment whether it's five or six or seven times. I think it's five or six times. He says, you have heard it said. And then he says, but I say to you. Now, uh, if it, one way to look at this is to say Jesus at this point is a 30-year-old guy, 30 or 31-year-old guy. And he, in his 30 or 31 years, has heard what everybody says. Um, and his experience of God, of life, of people has brought him to a place where he has the courage at the age of 30 to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Um, and so in a sense, Jesus is, uh, Jesus is inviting us to have the courage to take what everybody taught us. And as you said a few minutes ago, um, uh, Lee, that a child has no choice. They, they believe whatever they're told for some period of time. But to grow up and have the, the, the adult responsibility to say, I know everybody said this to me, but in my experience, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't hold water. Um, and this is 
and, and, and let's just be honest. I, I know people are worried. Oh, if you give people that permission, they'll go around and say and do terrible things. It's possible they might. I have to admit that. But I also have to admit that for, you know, 300 years in, in American history, um, 400 years now, uh, parents told, white parents told their children that they were superior and, mm. and were given a God-given position of domination and that black people and Native Americans and others were put in an inferior position. And those children devoutly went along with what, what they were taught. And, and there's something really, this, something very dangerous about this because some things when you're taught them, and if you believe them, they end up being self-reinforcing illusions. Mm -hmm. So yes. for example, if you're told I'm like, if I, as a guy am told I'm superior to women. So every woman I meet, I come up, I come onto her with a superior attitude. She's not going to respond in her best to me in all likelihood, right? Uh, Probably and, not. <laughs> which, will, which will then reinforce my idea of, of superiority. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to look and say, yes, damage can come from people thinking uh, on their own, having critical thinking. But damage can really come from people not having critical thinking. And this is why the call of Jesus which is the call of Paul and it's the call of, you know, Mary and it's the call of so many, uh, it's the call of Hosea and it's the call of Isaiah in the Bible too. The call to compassion and love mm -hmm. ends up being the call to us that says, if something I'm told makes me harm someone else, um, I have every reason to question it. That, that reminds me so much of what Paul says in Romans 2. And I always use this passage to kind of talk about people who believe in like faith only, you know, it's the hearers of the law. It's not the hearers of the law who are just, but the doers of the law. Mm. But we've kind of switched that in our churches. It's the hearers of the law. Those who go to the right church and hear the right things that are just <laughs> and not the doers. of. <laughs> but what about the people who have never heard, you know, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, yes. but do it anyways, instinctively. Paul says those people are justified. Paul says those are God's people. As Jesus said in, you know, Matthew 25, you know, you did those things to me. And they're like, we don't even know. <laughs> we didn't even know that. And so uh, that's such a powerful message that there's, there's people out there who do these things instinctively, but we're more concerned about where they heard it than whether or not they're doing it. <laughs> Gosh, Daniel, can I just say, you know, here, I'm an old guy and I've been preaching and reading and study the Bible my whole life. And I've heard so many sermons that pit Paul versus James. Paul says it's by yeah. faith. James says yeah. it's by works. But gosh, it never dawned on me. In Romans 2, Paul says what James says. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> thanks for, thanks for helping me see that. I Honestly, I never, I, I never ever noticed that before. Well, hey, look, I'm just an almost 30-year-old guy saying you've heard it's been said, but I say to you... <laughs> <laughs> well done, young man. Well done. Oh, man. Well, and something else, Brian, to go along with this that you mentioned is how you were taught to study your Bible, but not study it too much. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I don't think that's the way necessarily you worded it, but it was, it was the same way growing up in the that church of Christ yeah. that if people didn't agree with us, they needed to study more. 
Yes. And if they just continue, they were, in other words, they weren't good Bible students. Yeah. And you talk about second Timothy two fifteen. you know, we were, we were given that sanitized view as well that, Oh, this is talking about every single person has to have their, have their Bible in front of them. You know, at that point in time, the majority of the world would have been illiterate and they didn't have a new Testament anyway, but you know, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to study and memorize. And so it was all about just, just making sure we knew the Bible and, and and that's not a bad thing, of course. But then when we started asking questions that were outside of the safe zone, we were told, well, now you're studying too much. Now you're trying to dig too deep. And I, I call it the Goldilocks complex because we say, well, it's not too much this way or not too much that way. Well, it's like, well, we get on people for being ignorant, but then we study and then we continue studying. We go, no, 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 you're studying too much. And I loved how you brought that up because it does... I was taught that you don't need to think critically too much yeah. and just enough to get to where the leaders are at. And once you yeah. get to that point, you don't need to think critically anymore. They've, 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 got, they've got the rest figured out. Yeah. Already. Yeah. And, and I was yeah. even told that, Brian, I was told there were times when I had questions and I would go to pastors, elders, leaders in the church, even professors at colleges in the churches across. And I would say, you know, how do we, how do we answer this? Because mm -hmm. I can't. So how do you answer this? And one minister actually told me, he said, Kevin, that's a good question. I'm not sure. But if if brother so-and-so was still living, he's passed away. But if he was still living, we could go ask him. And I bet he would be able to give us a good answer. And when mm -hmm. I received that, I thought, really? Like, we don't even know why we believe what we believe. But <laughs> some dead old Church of Christ minister, if, he, if we could somehow resurrect him, we could find the truth. I mean, when I started hearing those types of things, I realized that I was being asked not only to suppress my experiences and compassion, but also to minimize or sometimes even dismiss altogether and abandon critical thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we can see where that has led in, in the country where these crazy Q, QAnon conspiracies yeah. and other things like this have spread like wildfire through churches because we've trained people to not think critically. And this yeah. leaves them sitting ducks for charlatans, for authoritarians, for demagogues. And we're, and this is shepherds making their sheep be vulnerable to some pretty dangerous people. Yeah. So, and, and isn't it interesting? Jesus says again and again, things like, uh, take heed how you hear or, or let those with eyes to see actually see. Right. And, and, uh, we're, yeah, I, I just think this is, the, he, he's saying, he's saying, you know, uh, to use the word uh, that you used a few minutes ago, Lee, trust your experience. Like, Pay attention. Open your eyes. See what's right there. And and uh, so and and this isn't an invitation for people to uh, give up on what really matters. It's it's saying if you care about what really matters, don't leave thirty percent of your brain outside the door. Don't leave one of your you know don't le don't leave your ability to see or hear or whatever uh, outside the door. Yeah, one thing I thought about, Brian, when you mentioned that was uh, we idolize the narrow way and we define it by the number of people. So if we find ourselves in the minority, we say, oh, well, we're just in the narrow way. Yes. And then w since we. Proves, yeah, proves we're doing the right thing. Yeah. And so since we see that the narrow way is persecuted, 
when we become persecuted as a minority group or whatever fringe position we might take, especially in the churches of Christ, that's just more proof that we're right. That we're right. We project that onto what we're going through. And yeah, we, we project uh, we project those thoughts and those feelings and, yeah. and what Scripture says and say, well, look, I'm being persecuted. Yeah. Jesus said, if you're faithful, you're going to be persecuted. Jesus said there's not going to be many. Yeah, there's four people at our church, but I mean, hey, Jesus said there's going to be few, and, and we're all figuring it out, and we know what we're doing, and nobody else does. So this is proving internally that I am a faithful Christian, and I've met yes. so many people who are like that. And, and going along with this idea, in chapter 9, uh, you discuss how much of Christianity has a what you call tightly constricted intellectualism. And, and I love that phrase. In fact, when I heard, I wrote it down because I'm like, that's one I'm going to repeat over and over again, because that is a perfect, I've never heard it described in those terms. And I love that. And you reason that constricted intellectualism is actually worse than anti-intellectualism. And so I was going to see what exactly you, you meant by that, which I understand because I read the book, but I was going to see if you could unpack that a little bit and explain why you think that's the case. Yeah. So, um, what seems to happen in a lot of groups, and by the way, I experienced this in a sort of fundamentalist Christian setting, um, but there are Muslims who experience this in their setting, and there are Jews who experience this, and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists and agnostics, right? This isn't unique to Christianity, right. but you become part of a group that highly value submission to the authority figures of the group. The way the group stays united is that the leaders ride hard on them to all stay in submission to the leader. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, uh, and this, there are all kinds of permutations of this. Sometimes it's very overt. Sometimes it's much more covert, but you're in a group like this and huge amounts of energy are spent to justify why we're right. Uh, intellectual energy and emotional energy, because the whole existence of our group depends upon us being right and better than everybody else. And, and so if we were to lose this, if we were to lose this sense that we're right and everybody else is wrong, or we're better and everybody else is worse, or we're chosen and everybody else is not chosen, however it would be defined, um, the whole thing falls apart because the group's reason for existence is to be correct and, and superior. That's an awful lot of energy that gets spent. And it, sometimes it's easier to see it in another community other than your own. Um, and you see other people living this out. I've, I've, it turns out when Faith After Doubt came out, a bunch of Mormons started reading it. So I've been contacted by a lot of Mormons. I've been in a lot of conversations with Mormons. And I'm, I'm not Mormon, never been Mormon. But um, as they've shared with me their experience, it's helped me see my own experience in, in, in a fresh way. Uh, so, yeah, that would be an example. Let, let, let me give uh, maybe a, a quick example that has a both personal and uh, and historic dimension to it. So I grew up, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, and evolution was a big deal. You were not allowed to believe in evolution. Super, super big deal. Um, you know what's interesting? Evolution became a really big deal in the 1920s and 30s. And what else was going on in the 1920s and 30s? Lynchings were going on. 
And so to think that white Christians across the South, but across the whole country, became obsessed with evolution and had nothing to say about lynching, um, it sort of, it makes you think. That's all I'll say is it makes you think. Wow. That's actually, that's actually interesting because um, I've said a few times to different, you know, different people that theology is a wonderful distraction from actually allowing our faith to express itself in love. <laughs> if if I can convince myself that sitting in an office all day studying to protect our precious truths is yes. is a battle that I have to fight, you know, yes. um, then I don't have to go out and and help my neighbor. I don't have yes. to go out and help out the homeless or <laughs> mm-hmm. or volunteer somewhere or you know just try to be a good person. I can read all day and not have to worry about all that kind yeah. of stuff, yeah. you know. Fight yes. this fight this fictional army of false teachers that's knocking at the door, ready to tear down our doctrines, <laughs> and you know then I don't have to be a good person. <laughs> As you say that, Daniel, I think about how as a as Protestants, I, I imagine it was the same for you as it was for me. We grew up thinking about how corrupt the Catholic Church became oh, when yeah, they were yeah, selling yeah. indulgences and all the rest. <laughs> but you know, when you look at what happened to Protestants, Martin Luther got a hold of this beautiful idea that we're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by faith. It didn't take too long, though, that the word faith got substituted for correct yep. beliefs. So we're saved by grace as long as we have the correct beliefs. And when that happens, you're on a whole new horse race. Who has the most correct beliefs? And and that can keep (laughs) us, uh, a term I use for that is it's a weapon of mass distraction. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Yeah, well, and and that's something that I even saw in my past life. And it's easy to overlook your own faults when you think that you're on the front lines of God's... uh, God's yeah. team. And, you know, I'm fighting these battles for God intellectually and theologically, and yet my personal life is not really reflective of Jesus or the fruit of the Spirit. But that's okay because yeah. I'm going to the right church, especially with the churches of Christ. I'm going to the right church of Christ within the church of Christ because it's not enough to be a member. You have to be a member of a sound and faithful church of Christ. And so I'm at least doing that. And then I'm, I'm worshiping correctly. And um, I'm, I believe this, right? I believe right about eschatology and I believe right about creation. And we're going to spend, you're talking about resources, spending so much, you know, so much of our energy and also just money. Growing up, we would go to all sorts of apologetic seminars. And a lot of times the church would pay for all of our youth group to go or, you know, they would pay for a lot of it. And all it would be is just reinforcing what we already were taught and what we already believed. But it was also positing everyone who disagreed as the enemy. It wasn't just they disagreed, but it was they are the bad guys. And we are in a battle. We need to, we even say stuff like it's time to, to, to rage war against what's happening right now in Christianity. And I mean, I grew up and I hate to say this, but I hated people. I grew up literally hating people who disagreed. Now, I would have never said that back then. You know, mm-hmm. I would I would have said I love their souls. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when you love somebody's souls, you can pretty much do anything you want to if you're if you feel justified. If you think that you're saving them, I mean, look at the Inquisition, right? We're going to torture them because why? We're saving their soul. And yeah. you can justify the most atrocious of actions if you really feel like they're coming from a divine place. And and yeah, I mean it it is just it's mind boggling. It really is. And not that I have arrived or have it figured out, but it has allowed me to even love the people in the churches where I came from even more. Now Mm -hmm. I do have empathy. I feel sorry 
for where they're at because I lived in a, in a hell already when I was like yeah. that. And there are so many who are still trapped. And, and it got me thinking about, what, especially what you said, Daniel. I know someone who, um, you know, they go to church, they're faithful in their attendance and all these types of things, but they have, they, they have openly refused to forgive someone. And uh, it's, a, it's a situation in which they'll tell you, you know, I'm not going to forgive this person. No, I'm just not going to. Um, and their justification is, but I'm doing all these other things correctly. And it just, we don't care about the fruit of the spirit. Um, you know, that was never really talked about much. You know, it was all about worshiping correctly, having the correct plan of salvation, but not really living those things out. Mm. Yeah. It's funny. Uh, I, I, so many similarities in, in my background. Uh, and, and I think of a story in, in the gospels that in, in a way completely contradicts that. And yet we found a way to get that verse on our side. Remember uh, when, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and she says, once she realizes, Oh, I think you're a prophet. She says, well, some people say we should worship on this mountain. Some people say we should worship on that mountain. Who's doing the right worship. And then he says, you know, the day is coming and now is basically, it doesn't matter which mountain you worship. God desires those who worship in spirit and truth. Well, then what we did is we said, we're worshiping in spirit and truth. They're not. <laughs> now we're at the right mountain. <laughs> yeah, we said we said spirit is your attitude and truth is the way you do it. And we got it both right, man. <laughs> oh, man. We can check those boxes for sure. Well, it's it's so interesting because whenever you're entrenched in that mindset, you don't really see it until your experience begins to run counter to what you've been conditioned to believe and what you've been taught to believe forever and ever and ever. And then that cognitive dissonance roots in and then off we go to the races. And for a lot of us, it's, it's re it's it's just reorienting ourselves into what it is that God desires and what he wants us to do and what he wants us to be. And it's not a matter of having the right opinion about this or that or the other. It's about loving one another. It's about treating one another the way that God wants us to treat one another. And that is through love. Our faith manifests itself by working in love. One thing I'd like to do, and I I don't want to, you know, steer the conversation in a different direction, but in one of the chapters in your book, you talk about this concept of the cult of innocence. And in that you speak of how oftentimes it's not just, you know, our beliefs that we tether our faith to or that are the ultimate expression of our beliefs, but it's this adopted innocence of some other downtrodden group Mm. that we co-opt to make ourselves feel a little bit holier. And Mm. I don't feel like I'm doing anywhere near any kind of justice to that concept, (laughs) nowhere near close to what you discussed in that chapter. So would you mind explaining that idea and that concept a little bit? Because I thought that was really interesting. Well, I thought you did a great job uh, with that, Lee. Um, So uh, one of the things I, I realized when I look back on my religious upbringing is I, I experienced a lot of shame. Um, uh, uh, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And uh, I was a pretty sensitive kid, so I took all that very seriously. And if I was taking that seriously about, you know, pinching my brother or stealing an extra cookie from, you know, the kitchen when my mother wasn't looking, 
when I hit puberty and started being a sexual human being and, you know, oh man, it's like this recipe to just make you feel ashamed for who you are. And, and what I realize is that there's dimensions. It, this is in Christianity, in certain parts of Christianity, but it's in other religions too. There are versions of this around the world, but where people are perpetually put in a position of shame. Um, they need some escape from shame. And, uh, and one of the ways to get an escape from shame is through what I call in the, in the book, a cult of innocence. And, and it requires two things. It requires an innocent victim um, that you can, in a sense, associate yourself with. And then it requires a villain who you can oppose. And if you can simultaneously associate with a victim and blame a villain, it, it has this at least temporary relief from your shame. Uh, and uh, I think we see this, uh, I think one, uh, whatever people's opinion is about, a, about abortion and about what our laws should be about abortion. I've, I've never, I actually have never met a person who thinks the more abortions, the better. I've never met a person like that. Um, but but we have differences of opinion about how the laws should uh, treat this and what requirements should be put on people. But in a sense, if I can say I'm protecting the most vulnerable of all uh, unborn babies, I'm now, I've now got a victim. And then if I can make anybody who doesn't agree with me part of the villain, and I call them liberals, and then I call them baby killers, and I accuse them of baby genocide, um, I mean, suddenly now they are vile, horrible people. And it seems to put in me this position of, of innocence, of this uh, transfused innocence from the victim. Now, one of the interesting things about people who see themselves as an innocent victim and on the side of innocent victims is they can't see it when they do harm to others. Mm -hmm. So what's so ironic to me right now, I live in Florida and um we just, you know, our, our, our state just passed more bills to make the lives of transgender children more difficult. Um, and people who've never met a transgender child, can they, if they only hear propaganda, their experience, they don't have any experience to tell them differently. But um, I have a transgender member of my family, a, a nephew of mine. Um, was born as my niece. And um, through the years, I've had a number, when I was a pastor, I had a number of people who were transgendered come and tell me their story. And uh, I've met many parents who, who are in the middle of this, right? So isn't it ironic that people who pride themselves on caring for the vulnerability of the unborn cannot even imagine that they're actually hurting real children when they, uh, in the way they speak of transgender children or gay children or whatever. And so all that's to say, it's very tempting and it's very easy when you think you're innocent that you can harm other people. A historical example, you know, the early pilgrims who came to the United States, of course, a lot of the people who came to America were not pilgrims. They were business people trying to make money, but there were religious refugees that we would call them. And they understood themselves to be victims of a brutal Catholic persecution and then an equally brutal uh, Church of England persecution. And so they came here and they felt, uh, oh, we are victims and God is giving us this land. And they couldn't see that they 
in the process of thinking themselves as innocent victims, they stole the land and the lives and the freedom of the people who lived here before them. Yeah, it's it's a dangerous thing to think of yourself as innocent, which by the way is what's so interesting about Jesus. Uh, Jesus models for us not holding himself back from the people who are seen as dirty and guilty, but having dinner with them and and being in solidarity with them uh, and defending them, you know. Yeah, and that when I was reading that chapter, I really reflected back on my life as well. And when I I call it my grave my grace conversion. And when I left legalism, when I first started changing, I feel like I joined that cult of innocence, right? Because yeah. I was the victim. I had been raised in a legalistic environment, but now I was part of the good guys and I, I was part of the grace team now. And, and I looked at, at, at kind of my past and those in it with disdain as, yes. oh, they're, you know, they're, they're now the other. <laughs> yes. And, and it's so easy. And that's what Lee and I on our podcast too, you know, we, we always try to be very careful because w- number one, we don't know who's listening to this podcast, but number two, we want people to know, you know, even in an, even within freedom, you yes. can be a jerk. And, yes. and even, you know, I, I felt at first when I was reading materials and, and comments of, of, you know, people who were deemed more liberal um, and those types of things, I would agree a lot with their theology, but then I realized they're really no different than where I came from. Mm-hmm. They're just holding to different beliefs. And yeah. it wasn't until maybe a year or two later, I realized that I had changed mentally. I had changed theologically, but I had not changed. Wow. <laughs> and yes. and when I was reading that uh, last, uh, when I was reading that uh, last chapter, not the last chapter, but the about the cult of innocence, I thought to myself, you know, that even within that, you can be guilty. And yes. because it's so easy to always victimize where we're at, and yes. I I loved that point because. Anyone reading the book, they're going to, I think it's going to force them to be self-reflective. <laughs> and all of us can point to a, a time period where we're like, yeah, that, that's me. You know, that's me. And within the book, you, you're, you're using that to show why you should stay Christian because our, you know, one of the arguments you're using um, as a point why you could or why you should is that it's easy to leave and victimize yourself, but you're still going to be miserable. And you pointed out no matter what system you're a part of, that can still play out and it will still play out. That has nothing really to do with Christianity at all. It's more yeah. to do with humanity, as you, as you <laughs> yeah. mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I love what you're talking about, the cult of innocence. See, I've never read the book, so all this is brand new to me. <laughs> um, but it reminds me a lot of the, uh, the scapegoat mechanism from Rene yes. Girard. Yes. Um, I was talking to, to Kevin about that, but we... Right here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, we tend to find it easier to crucify others than we do to crucify ourselves. Yeah. And so the cult of innocence, the cult of innocence, then becomes this wonderful thing where we can pat ourselves on the back for talking about abortion or whatever. When yeah. we have greed and pride and lust and love of money, you know, yeah. just all in our lives. But if we have that common victim, then we don't have to acknowledge our own sin. We don't have to go through the the hard work of crucifixion, and so that's that's just that's just brilliant. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really appreciated, Brian, whenever you were discussing and laying out this idea of this cult of innocence is how you related it to the transgender struggle that so many people have today. And for a very long time, 
I wouldn't call myself homophobic. I would say that I absolutely hated people that were involved in homosexuality or transgenderism. And there are some personal reasons for that that we may get into in a future episode on this podcast. But it's funny because as a pro-life, conservative, Southern Oklahoman Republican at that time, you know, I'm all about doing everything I can to protect the unborn and protect the innocent. And then I'm looking at those, you know, filthy, depraved, perverted transgender people as being subhuman or less than. Yes. And then lo and behold, in my practice, who do I have come into my office to take care of but a transgender couple? Wow. And whenever I got to know them yes. and I saw them living in a loving, harmonious relationship with one another, being amazing parents to their children, being amazing pillars and activists in the community to help the homeless, to help those in need, to help even some of the people that hated their absolute guts. Yeah. That was a huge wake up call for myself. Yeah. That was a huge slap in the face to me to see, like you said just a moment ago, I'm not all that innocent in, yeah. in all of this. And then I found myself some months down the road after getting to know these people and taking care of them and getting to, to, to really kind of experience a slice of life with them. Yeah. You know, occasionally I would have people in my office at the same time they were in there who would, you know, say some degrading things about them after they left or whatever else. I'm like, well, hold up. You don't know who these people are. Yes. These are people just like you. They're just like me. Jesus loves them just as much as he loves me and just as much as he loves you. Yes. So maybe we ought to be a little nicer about that. <laughs> but yes. when, whenever you see things like that, whenever you see your own bigotry come back and punch you right in the nose, Yes. That is the biggest exposure to the lack of innocence that you have at that point. So I'm, I really appreciate you using that point because it's made me especially sensitive to the plight that that particular group faces, that particular community, the LGBTQ community. They are still vilified by so many people and they need Jesus and they need his love just as much as anyone else does. Yeah. And for us to continue to do that as Christians, and by us, I don't mean us here, of yeah, course, but yeah, yeah. for Christianity to do that at large, fundamentalist Christianity, it's, yeah. it, it's a travesty. And it really does expose the fact that none of us are really innocent whenever we think about it. Yeah. And of course, that's uh, returning to the theme of Romans uh, uh, that we talked about a little while ago. This is kind of what Paul does in Romans. He does it takes three chapters to say we're all a mess if any of us think we're better than somebody else that shows what a mess we are so yep. uh, that, it, it's uh th there's there's some precedent to that um and you know your story there is is very powerful and it brings to mind another story you think in the book of acts that incredible story in acts 10 where paul who I, i'm sorry where peter who thinks of himself as one of the clean, has a dream, and in the dream, God tells him to eat unkosher food, which just sounds, it makes him want to throw up. It's disgusting. It makes him just disgusted. I would never do this. Are you kidding? But in his dream, to hear God telling him to eat food that was sinful um, and then God says, what, what does the voice say to him? Uh, whatever I've called unclean, you better not, wh whatever I've called clean, you better not call unclean. 
It's just this total disruption to innocence and filthy or clean and unclean. And then he goes from there and actually meets some people who invite them to their home where he shouldn't even enter the home because it will make him unclean. And when he enters their home, he says, ah, God has shown me I should stop calling people clean or unclean. It's just not the way to think. I've spent so much of my life perfecting my list of who's clean and unclean. (laughs) And now God brings me to the place where I realize that's really not the point, which by the way, is a beautiful example of, of moving through the stages we talked about before, because in stage one, it's all about figuring out who's clean and who's unclean. Um, And then then you get to the point and you realize I am damaging people. I'm hurting people through this. And then you're ready for this breakthrough uh, to, to see things in, in, in a new light. Uh, I mean, isn't that Acts chapter 10? It's just this revolutionary passage uh, that, that still just sort of shakes me up when I take it seriously. Well, I think it's a great example of, it, it ties in beautifully with the con, another concept that you discuss in the book about freeing God from our perceptions of who God is, because, yeah. you know, all of Peter's perceptions are based upon everything that he's been taught as a Palestinian Jew. You know, he's yeah. there in that Judean region. That's all he's ever known. That is reality to him. That is truth to him. This is what God wants. This is what God expects. This is the picture of who God is in his mind. And God has to undo that. And you you speak about evolving language and developmental metaphors and relating to God in that sense. And Kevin, you may want to post this question because you're the one that wrote this question. So I'll hand it off to you so you can do that. So I don't butcher it too much. No, no, you're good. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about this idea of freeing God and the language we use about God. And you did a phenomenal job about showing how the the Jews' understanding of God changed. And even throughout the Old Testament, we see language used to describe God was very much culturally positive. I mean, we see that God is seen as used as a metaphor in the Old Testament or the metaphor of him being a polygamist. And I know zero fundamentalist Christians who use God as a metaphor or use this metaphor of God being a polygamist today to justify polygamy. Um, you know, they're, they're not saying, well, look, I mean, this is a metaphor. It works back then. If it was good enough for them, it's good enough for us. Um, we understand that metaphors are culturally positive. It has to speak to the people in their day and time. And, and those metaphors change for how we understand God. And, you know, we, we, even the slave master metaphor and relationship. I mean, we, that that's in the new Testament, that is the most used metaphor for Christ and the church. And, you know, today we still quote from those metaphors, but we don't actually go up to non-Christians in conversations or people who maybe see things differently than us. Like, yeah, you know, it's just like a slave and master Um, (laughs) because those metaphors don't work for us today. We're we're living in a different time and culture. And so with that being said, um, you, you know, I want, want you to kind of just talk to us for a few minutes about why are these things, such as evolving language and developmental me- metaphors, why are they essential in being able to relate to God? And why do we need to make sure that we are developing new metaphors and new ways to talk about God and understand God that people can relate to today? Yes. You know, it, as you say that, it reminds me of a... Uh, 
uh, a friend of mine who's a pastor in England. And he said, Brian, he said, you Americans have to understand our situation here is so different in England. If I walk up to the average British person my age and say, would you like to be a Christian? It's like asking them, would you like to be an Aztec? (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's not even something from our time zone, you know? And, uh, and I think those of us who've grown up in the church, we don't understand how because of our love for God and because of the role the Bible has in our lives, we inhabit a different metaphorical universe. We inhabit the universe that was contemporary 800 BC, or it was contemporary (laughs) in 80 AD. And and we don't have any language that is, we, we have almost no language that's contemporary to our culture. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting about that is that, in a sense, we think we're being biblical, but in the Bible, they weren't using uh, outdated metaphors. They were using contemporary yeah. metaphors. And and so that raises the question, how would we talk about the how what would be the metaphors today that would be as valid and electric and helpful for us? And One other thing I could say about this, um, uh, because I know our our time is just about up, but I I, I think it's helpful to also realize that one metaphor is chosen because it corrects a problem of the previous metaphor. So um, in Jesus' day, God was the king of the universe. Well, there's a whole lot of problems with the metaphor of king if most of your kings are tyrannical. And, and corrupt. So what does Jesus do? He really lifts up the metaphor of father because mm-hmm. fathers have an element of care for their children that the typical king doesn't have for his subject. But then we realize if you only use the metaphor of father, then you can over-masculinize God. And depending on your image of father, it could be helpful or not. And this is where we realize no metaphor is perfect. and And they always have to be held lightly. And we have to know the difference, as you've probably heard the saying, between the moon and the finger that points to the moon. And and so there's something out there we're pointing to, and that's what we need to keep looking toward. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say briefly, Brian, uh, you talk about metaphors and we over-masculinate God. I've actually, in recent months, tried to stop using the masculine pronoun when I refer yeah. to God. I'll just try to find some other alternative. And it's actually been kind of challenging and I'll catch myself doing it. I'm not too, you know, legalistic about, <laughs> about doing that, I guess, but you better uh, not be, <laughs> but I found it, but I found it challenging and also kind of interesting because you have to play with different ways. Yes. How you, how you word your sentences, how you word your yeah. talk to talk about, you know, who God is. And uh, thinking about that, I always go back to uh, Matthew 23, you know, God's like a big mother hen wanting to just gather his people underneath, yes. his, you know, yes. underneath their wings. And yes. so it's not, if, if Jesus can talk about God as a, as a, as a big chicken, then yeah. where's, where's female my freedom? Chicken. Yeah. That's female right. chicken, you know, where's my freedom to be able That's to talk right. about God in, in equally interesting and creative ways. Well, I got to tell you guys, this has been such an absolute pleasure. I actually have to run and I wish I didn't because this has been so much fun. We'll have to do it again sometime, but I really appreciate the time with you guys. Well, we appreciate you so much for coming on our podcast. Uh, Guys, this book is phenomenal. It is excellent. You're going to love it. Do I Stay Christian? 
Uh, Brian, when is this book going to release? I don't know what the release date is for. Yeah, it. May 24th. Yeah. May 24th. It's available anywhere you can buy quality books. Do you have a preference that you would like to promote? Um, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Mardell's, wherever. Yeah, I always encourage people to support their local bookseller if they possibly can, but you can get it anywhere and you can pre-order it now so that all of that is uh, available now. And, Fantastic. And Brian, I just wanted to once again say thank you so much because the everything you've gone through, everything you've done, your experiences, you have laid so much groundwork for guys like us who uh, are you know, we're, we're very much lost and who needed someone to help point the way and give us that place to explore. And so what you've done, I mean, I, I can't thank you enough for what it means to us and what it means to so many other people. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I, I know that you're very, very, very busy person. And so this means the world to us. Uh, we were like giggly little children uh, when we found out, you know, in a candy store, when we found out you were going to come on the podcast. So thank you so much. Well, well, we'll see you down the road. What a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you guys. Sounds good. Thank you so much. And to our audience, we thank you so much because without you, we wouldn't have this podcast. So subscribe to us on YouTube, like us on Facebook, join our Facebook discussion page. We'd love to have you on that. Give us that coveted five-star review on iTunes, even though we're not supposed to covet because we're Christians, but still do that because yeah, we want those five-star reviews. If you have any questions for us, any comments, anything at all positive or negative, drop us a line. Our email address is always in the show notes. We thank you all very much, and we all wish you a good day.